welcome to Pen Optivox number two. Um, I'm interviewing Cameron Croach for this one, and Cameron is an important interview because he's a member of the LGBTQ committee, which needs a better name, um, and also was a member of the Pride Committee this year. Cameron was the one who spoke to the police previous to Pride and has a lot of good insight in the political processes in Hamilton. So this is a super political conversation. It's very worth it. Um, and I felt really lucky to sit down with Cameron. Um, you know, at the moment, Hamilton's as crazy as it's ever been. The, the GIC General Issues Committee that uh, happened at City Council tonight just really is demonstrating that our members of council don't really understand what the fuck is happening in Hamilton. Cameron Croach, we're in Gage Park. What a weird, neat place to be with you. It's a lovely place. It's today. phenomenal. It's internationally famous as the spot where, you know, hate crimes are committed now, which is... Yeah. <laughs> which I, I have read people literally blame that on you. Which is crazy. And everybody's looking for someone to blame when there's a thing going on. I've certainly placed some blame in places. But I don't think you're to blame in any way. It sounds to that. me like the Pride Committee, which you're part of, mm -hmm. did a pretty good job of arranging things and let the police know what to expect yeah i think that there's lots of things pride has to answer for in this i mean i can't speak for what pride should or shouldn't have done or i'm just kind of one one part sure. of that puzzle but yeah i think that pride could have been more prepared for that right i know that last year pride certainly did more work around that uh -huh. work around talking to the community and trying to figure out what could be done to prepare um, less of that was done this year mm -hmm. but yeah there was a conversation when the police called and said hi we're putting an operational plan together a couple of days before Pride and said, yeah. you know, what, what should we do? Uh, what happened last year? What are you expecting to happen? And uh, so there was a conversation, and in my mind anyway, I thought, yeah, they're going to show up kind of outside the event area before the event starts. Mm -hmm. They're going to kind of be watching out, and then if something happens, they're going to intervene in whatever that is. Yeah. Didn't happen, so... <clears throat> so let's, kind of for a moment, me. for yeah. people that have never even heard of us or anything else that's going on, there might be one of those listening. Um, some assholes came really looking for a fight. So they call themselves street preachers. I think street preacher just means that you can't afford a place to preach because you don't have a congregation. So you're literally just shouting <laughs> racist or homophobic things in the street and they're calling that preaching um, they came last year to Pride and um, and were very successfully rebuffed by a group of people that put up a black wall to block out their signs um, and I remember hearing about that and just being like what? Th that's how you do? you know, wow, that's pretty phenomenal and then this year same folks came back yeah. but along with them were some folks that were pretty damn violent as well. Um, and the rebuffing didn't work in the same way as before. And I, I've watched way too much video of the whole incident. It's ridiculous. Uh, 
but yeah, it got really bad. And I'm seeing things like 15 year old girls getting punched right in the face and people getting smashed in the face with helmets and stuff like that. Um, being part of the group that was there to put pride together, how did that feel to you? Like, were you there in the moment or did you hear about it afterwards? Uh, last year I was sort of not very involved in the organizing part of it yeah. formally and sort of came in at the end to help out mm -hmm. and was doing a job helping with pride which didn't let me be over by the protest very much so or yeah. I was there last year, walked over, saw what was happening but kind of went in and out and I kind of regretted that thinking I really should have borne witness to what happened last year sure. because someone has to, people have to, there has to be people afterward who will say what happened yeah. um, this year. I made sure that I was there. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was standing there for almost all of it um, and made sure that myself or another organizer was standing down where that was happening so that later when um, this got reported on or when people were talking about it or people had questions mm -hmm. or during a debrief, I could definitively say X, Y, Z, these are the things sure. that happened, right? Yeah. yeah. So It was hard to be there and watch it for sure. So you managed to find out that this was happening and go to it almost immediately? We were organized in terms of having walkie-talkies, all the organizers, So, yeah. and we have, we're all spread out around the place, so as soon as mm -hmm. someone had seen, they're 12-foot banners, right? So it's, it's not, hard to miss, yeah. It's hard to miss these 12-foot um, hateful slogans. Sure. And as soon as someone had said over the walkie-talkie, they're here, mm -hmm. you know what that meant, and then I did the same thing, I let everybody else know, and then immediately I went over there. Yeah. and to make sure that I could stand and see what was going on. Um, so I found out what was happening. Uh, yeah. So probably there from close to the beginning, I've watched the video and counted out the minutes like of how long those folks were there for, how long people tried to block them with the black banner doing so mm. pretty dang respectfully actually. Mm. Um, not taking any shit, but doing so pretty pretty respectfully. Um, and then things turned into a little bit of shoving and shoving happened on both sides and I get it if somebody's trying to get into your space and move you physically you're gonna shove back on them completely understand that but then punching began happening and I have watched a whole bunch of the videos I don't recall seeing anybody of the pride defenders or anybody that was attending pride throw a single punch I don't think that happened I've seen lots of punches go from the other side. What was the like the time lapse of that? It's like 20 minutes? It felt like between 20 and 40 minutes. That's what I consistently keep saying. Like, I don't know where in there, but <clears throat> between the time I got there and the time, I guess, that a number of police came to uh -huh. kind of intervene. Yeah, yeah well, I measured, I measured the police response and it's at, it's at like 32 minutes. It's a while. So... That went all went on for yeah. back and forth with pauses and breaks and shouting. That went on for quite a while. And uh -huh. it was really distinctly different than what had happened the previous year because, of course, police were there last year too. Yeah. Um, and they were there kind of right away. Mm -hmm. um, they, they almost formed a kind of barrier between themselves initially and um, street preachers to keep them at the edge of the permit area. Yeah. And seemed to just like have had enough folks really there to deal with the number of people that were there. Uh -huh. It didn't seem to be... I'm not saying that... Uh, last year uh, that police did or didn't prevent something from mm -hmm. happening but they were well, there, they were there and they um, 
participated in, in letting them know, hey, you can't have amplified sound here in the permit area. Uh, these folks have a permit. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they were there with, with kind of armed with information and making sure that the folks knew what yeah. the limits of their protest could be mm-hmm. and, and, and kept them to those limits. So. Well, and, and that's, a, that's an interesting word, protest. And, and and I mean, I get called an activist now and then. I'm really not sure how, what to think of the term, but I've certainly protested things. I, I don't think that what they were doing is a protest, and I don't think that what Pride Defenders... This is my personal take on it. I don't think that what people defending against it were doing was counter-protesting. I, I literally think these people came with came here to the park with the intention of causing trouble. I think they came with the intention of performing hate crimes, you know? I can't disagree and actually super agree because Uh they didn't just come down here with um, signs um, that they may have done last year. Um, They came down here with the intention of uh, to create commit violence. And the reason I feel that way is because of their armored appearance, some of them, and the kinds of... uh, the way in which they use the poles that held the signs up. These are poles that are 12 foot uh, retractable poles. Uh-huh. They're uh, heavy-ish. And when things started to get violent, they immediately detached those poles and, yeah. and began to menace that, you know, menace people with them. Mm-hmm. So they came with a plan here. They came with a plan to, to uh, weaponize themselves and to come down to commit violence. And I wouldn't say it was a protest, it was an attest, right? I mean, it's an attestation yeah. of their views, their very active hatred towards the community, yeah. and their wish to disrupt an event um, that that seemed to have uh, gotten bigger this year because of what was sure. happening at City Hall and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, an effect of having those folks, some of those folks join in with the folks from last year and create a kind of... Mm-hmm. coalition unfortunately of white nationalists <laughs> literally from the yeah. Canadian white nationalist party uh-huh. um, other white supremacists randos <laughs> randos uh, right? those are my favorite ones rando rando hateful people yeah exactly um, and it was really heartening to see not only people come prepared to defend others mm-hmm. but you saw things this year that were absolutely heartwarming the people who just live near this park yeah who came out from their homes to find out what was happening and stood down there uh-huh. um, to protect folks. And uh, it just kind of showed how wonderful the community was in trying to respond to that in the yeah. absence of there being any other kind of response. Uh-huh. Well, it's, I watched all of that video and and at a certain point I was just like numbed to the violence and not upset about that anymore. But I started bawling because I saw one of my friends um, just constantly blocking these guys from gaining access and he was just like he was you know right in the face and and shouting at the guy but not attacking him and and being very careful not to cause violence and backing off when he needed to but he like maintained that for 15 20 minutes backed off came back in for five minutes got punched in the face came back for five more minutes and i'm like fuck thank you you know because cause I'm like literally over here in the park not knowing that anything's going on. Right. Because people protected the rest of the crowd. People protected the children that are here. And and they got assaulted in order to do so. Which is, you know. And my feelings that day after learning what went down and 
and all of that was just like this is terrible but it's somehow gonna um it's somehow gonna feel better you know there's there's something to this that'll cause it to feel but these guys couldn't possibly get away with this they'll get arrested you know and i'm not saying i believe in truth justice in the american canadian way but <laughs> i i thought that something would happen and 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 my boobs are falling out um <clears throat> i thought that there would be like significant police action um with regards to that because seeing those assaults they're vicious they're vicious assaults and and i've been punched in the face before it sucks and we've all seen it many 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 times in movies and stuff like that and you know you you kind of lose you lose the idea of what the stakes are of being punched in the face. I don't know, have you ever been punched in the face? No, I've never really been punched this in the face. This is good. Because you can actually die from being punched in the face. Like, it can go that wrong. It, it's not something that you can do when somebody just recovers from always. I'm thinking there's like a chance every time you punch somebody in the face that you're actually going to kill them or cause mm. severe damage. And you know, these folks did not hesitate to do so, which is really worrisome. And, um, <clears throat> but to go back to your experience with that, let's go back to the police response. Mm. Um, because I didn't know it was so bad as it was until I started doing the math of it. So my understanding is that, you know, just somewhere over here by the parking lot, there was either two or four police officers sitting in their cars, hanging out, which is okay. Um, and that was the contingent of police officers that were here. I've also yeah, been told that there were plainclothes within the crowd, which, I don't know, maybe that feels a little creepy, but I guess also they're supposed to be there to protect people so right. let's even imagine that that's so <clears throat> um, the response time is a really big problem for me and and has remained so and 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 it shocks me that that's not one of the big massive issues in this like it's 34 issue 34 minutes 32 minutes somewhere in there from those guys entering the park to the police being there and doing something and, and and their reasons haven't been as far as i'm concerned very compelling so the reasons have been uh we were down at city hall dealing with other hateful protesters sure. um, who had left already know, by then there's yeah. only so many people we could operationalize to get down there we only you know we we did have these folks in the wings waiting mm -hmm. and I think the part that's the hardest for me to, to take in of all the different kinds of reasons or um, excuses the police have given is that they were there the last year. Where this happened was an identical spot, so yep. right in exactly the same spot. Uh -huh. I mean, there are two light white bark trees that create almost a kind of V pattern. Like, uh -huh. This is right where this happened. Mm -hmm. And they knew where it was going to happen again because when they called and they asked, I said, it's going to probably happen in the same space, so you should be aware that it's going to happen in the same exact space. It happened so it was, it was you that had that call, yeah, handled that I call? I chatted with them. And okay. so 
I also said during that call, you should just go on the internet. Look up 2018 Hamilton Pride, check yep. the pictures out, see what you're going to expect to have happen here, and mm-hmm. then expect it to be a lot worse. And, you know, you know, the response I got was we'll be down there around 1130 before your event starts at 12. And, uh, you know, if we have any other concerns or questions, we'll give you a call. And then the day of the event comes, <clears throat> uh, that person is nowhere to be found. They've got someone else working. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are, as you said, two uniformed officers about 25 feet back from what's happening. Um, on their phone calling in backup and so yeah. they're not obviously not prepared or aware of what's happening in any kind of meaningful way mm-hmm. there may be plainclothes people but they're not necessarily doing anything and when i approached the two officers who were there in uniform and said what you know what's going on their response was we're not equipped to deal with this we need to call in for yeah uh, whatever they said backup or reinforcements i sure. don't remember but they need to call somebody and then one guy was on the phone calling them in so yeah. they weren't there in and numbers the- and and i don't i'm never going to really mm-hmm. understand uh, why that was. Yeah. Um, but the statement in the newspaper was, well, we had 48 officers respond. Right. And I'm like, well, well that, that makes it look really great. You guys showed up with 48 officers. Eventually. Right. So when, when you got off that call, did you feel like, did you feel confident that they were business as usual with regards to pride as usual? Yeah, that's and that's a really important, sadly you know. important statement, which is that it hasn't been an issue in the in the recent past that there wasn't a recruitment booth. So yeah. they were still going to come, and I, I naively, I say, uh, I, I say this over and again, naively uh. thought that they would show up um, in sufficient numbers at the time they said they were going to, um, understanding the yeah. uh, as they call it the threat level uh-huh. um, of folks that were going to be in town. I mean, in the at least the past two, three, maybe four years or more, there hasn't been a recruitment booth, and uh, there was one at the Corktown Park event, I think, or the Bayfront mm-hmm. Park event, but there hasn't been really consistently been one for almost yeah. more than a decade. Uh-huh. And so, if that's the consistent kind of pattern that's happening, um, and there hasn't been a rancor or an outcry from the police about this subject, what happens when that becomes the main focus of the reason why you say you weren't there, right? That's a weird pattern of yeah. uh, linguistic <clears throat> pattern for me anyways, and also a pattern of leadership. If, you know, why are you saying that having, having had a recruitment booth would have changed things? If this was a really <clears throat> big priority for mm-hmm. you in the, in the wake of, of last year, and this was a danger to people in sure. an operational sense, mm-hmm. um, why weren't you making sure that was something that you were letting other people know before it happened? Yeah, well, so let's, for folks that aren't aware, a lot of the chief, oh God, I almost said chief to care, former <laughs> chief. What the heck's his name? Uh, Eric Gert. Yeah, Gert. Yeah. Chief Gert's response almost immediately after the event was to, I, it, it's really victim blamey, is to say that their lack of response was because they were asked not to be there. So, so that became like one of the things that was publicly said is, yeah. well, if you expect the police to protect you, then uh, you should enable them to be at your event, etc. Um, and so you being the person that interfaced with the police, they were just not given the booth and... Yeah, probably decided not to give them a booth. Yeah. Were they even asked like to keep a low profile within the event itself, or? It really wasn't that specific, right? So yeah. everybody who applied to Pride this year uh, had to apply for an application through a vendor application, mm-hmm. and including the police, and Pride reviewed all that stuff and decided sure. not to approve their application for a recruitment booth. Yeah. Um, but 
beyond that, it didn't get down to the really super specifics. Sure. In terms of, you know, you shouldn't do X or shouldn't do Y. In the phone call, though, uh-huh. um, when I spoke to them, I said, here's the permit area. I'll show you, you know, I'll bring the map up on your computer. Let's talk about where yeah. the event's going to be. Uh-huh. Let's talk about where the um, street features are going to be. Mm-hmm. There's a huge space. I mean, the park we're in now is almost 30 hectares, whatever yeah. that means. Uh-huh. But that sounds huge. Huh. So um, it's almost 30 hectares, right? And I'd say that the space we booked was like a third of the, or maybe a quarter of the park space. Yep. And only half of that we were using. Mm-hmm. There was a big buffer between where the event itself was going on, where we didn't want to have uniformed and armed officers, and where this was actually happening. So sure. there's plenty of space for police to uh, go ahead and prevent, or go ahead and intercept, I would even say, right? Mm-hmm. More accurate. Intercept folks who they had reason to believe uh, were yeah. uh, up to something. I mean, sure. you're carrying 12-foot banners uh-huh. um, with long giant poles, even if you've retracted them. These are recognizable. When you're wearing body things, armor. Right? Yeah. They're the same people from last year, too, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of them are exactly the same people who were there last year. A very yeah. recognizable part of that community. Uh-huh. So the question is, you know, what what's going mm-hmm. on there? Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's hard, like... I try to process things in as many ways as possible when I think about them. So it's, I, I try to process them from perspectives of people that don't at all understand this kind of stuff. And you know, like some random grandma, not to give grandmothers or old people no credit or anything like that, but just somebody that doesn't understand pride, thinks that the police are the good guys that are there to protect the community, all of these kinds of things. <clears throat> Even from that perspective, this isn't okay. Somebody didn't do their job right. And and I don't understand why. But I do understand some of the follow-up, follow-up of it, or fallout rather, of it, that gets pretty fucked up. Um, and I, and I, I don't think we can go into all of that, but... But basically, there seems to be a set of reasons for lack of police support. And, you know, the arrest of Cedar Hopperton, you were there, you heard what Cedar said. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the arrest of Cedar Hopperton, the lie that they were arresting Cedar for being at the Pride event, which I was around the Pride event. I know what Cedar looks like. I was like, I didn't see Cedar. Nobody did because Cedar wasn't there. But putting that forth to the public and saying that, well, we've made an arrest in relationship to the events at Pride is a statement that allows them to look like they're doing their job protecting the community when in fact they're, you know, and further arresting others who were there. They're arresting the people who were defending people at Pride. And... And, and I think that there's a, a couple of fundamentally disjointed parts to that, which, which really worry me. And, and this is the big crux of the whole deal for me, <clears throat> is we all have a right to defend ourselves. And I think that that should extend to groups, um, that groups of people have a right to collectively defend themselves. And this is kind of what Cedar Hopperton was saying at City Hall. Um, I read it as if you don't have the strength to actually defend yourself 
and then choose nonviolence, you're not actually making a choice, you're just being weak. And, and that sounds like something that Bruce Lee would say. You know, yeah, and actually, I'm yeah. pretty sure that there is a quote of Bruce Lee saying that, you know, I make the choices of nonviolence by learning how to commit violence and then I can actively make that choice instead of... Yeah. And I'm like, that's actually a really deep and important thought to engage with in this is, you know, we're not a weak community of people. I don't feel weak in this. If somebody comes up to me with that kind of stuff, I can handle myself and and I don't want to you know and I would probably actively work at not having to be involved mm. in violent incidents actually I'm 100% sure I, I do actively work to not be involved in violent incidents right. but saying that and being arrested for it is is a really big problem you know saying it in a public space in our city hall um, what were you thinking in those moments when Cedar was saying those words? Well, I was I was facilitating that discussion, so I was mm -hmm. a facilitator, and uh, the way the whole meeting was set up was to give a chance for we invited I don't remember now maybe ten or so panelists to speak. Yeah, and they would have a chance to speak on there were three topics, and mm -hmm. the entire intent of that meeting actually originally was to discuss the flag raising situation, not to discuss pride, but because pride uh -huh. happened three days prior. We made space for that. Sure. But, you know, panelists talk, and then there was equal time given to the public. So yeah. many people got up and spoke. Mm -hmm. And some people said things that were polemic. Some think people said things that were supportive. Some people said things that were directed or criticized, you know, pride or criticized other organizations and asked questions about what mm -hmm. they could do. Um, some people got up there and they said, you know, I spit at police, right? Sure. Um, and that wasn't Cedar for the record. Yeah. But, you know, there were a lot of comments made. It was a real kind of cross. When I was listening to what Cedar was saying, what I took away from that was, okay, this is about self-defense. So mm -hmm. what ought the community be doing to ensure that if something happens, if they're confronted with violence, that they have the tools, they have the resources, they have mm -hmm. the skills, whatever you want to call it, to defend themselves. And yeah. that's what I took away from that. Uh -huh. and, and there was some clapping during the statements that made sure. it made between the pauses and things. You know, and there were some part, points where there were less clapping. Yeah. But at no point did I think that the conversation or the comments got to a place of inciting hate, nor did, was hate incited as uh -huh. right? So um, nothing hateful happened. There were no violent things that came out of that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that that it was callous of the officers who were sitting there to use that as an opportunity uh -huh. to report on someone. So and it's a safe space. We made sure that media wasn't exactly. reporting. Uh -huh. um, I went around to and, and made sure that was part of the agenda that was public, that this is an event where people can feel safe from being surveilled. And then two yeah. people came and surveilled someone. Well, so, so that's a, that's that's a thing. There was the me. deputy yeah. chief was there, but also there were several undercovers at this meeting? So all I know is there were two officers there um, one was a deputy chief, and one was the detective sergeant in charge of hate crimes in plain uh -huh. clothes. Okay. Right? And as far as uh, I know, based on the various things on the internet that are now public as, as a result of this, yeah. it was that plain clothes officer who made the report okay. to the parole board. Right? And so for people who don't know, the parole board is not a hyper-legal arm of the law. There's mm -hmm. not a necessarily the same standard that's yeah. put in a superior court case. Um, I've been surprised right? in looking into that how... 
parallel how lack yeah it's not it's on the side of legality right Mm -hmm. there's a lot there's a severe lack of oversight in that process it seems like and two people right so i think people don't know that either only two people on the parole board made the decision Mm -hmm. in the end so you know uh, is that enough people for the parole board decision should there be three or five or should there be an odd number or especially when we're we're making decisions what that in that potentially impinge free speech and that ultimately did to my mind well, worse um, than that in my mind, and, you know, for me, the thing that stands out is that we keep hearing in Ontario and Canada about how the carceral system is not equipped um, to deal with, well, the, the carceral system's not equipped, first of mm-hmm, all. Sure. The carceral system is specifically not equipped to deal with or to um, house or to let live uh, trans folks. Yep. And when those folks go into incarceration, mm-hmm. um, they're further marginalized. Yep and often put in solitary confinement and mm-hmm. other kinds of restrictions and provisions. So when you're when you're making a choice as the police to come to a meeting and surveil a trans person, yeah. and then to incarcerate that person through a process of punishment mm-hmm. um, for reasons which I still don't uh, think are very clear, um, yeah. that's a real choice. Yeah, that's, well, so yeah, that's a violent choice. I literally know that if I ever do something or get implied that I did something that causes me to go to jail, I'm going to spend that time in solitary which is fucking crazy, you know. Yeah, it's it's really um, deeply troubling. Not, not that our jails aren't bad enough. We're exactly. seeing all kinds of headlines now about, um, about complaints about our local jail. But, I mean, how long does it take to adjust to these kinds of things? And I'm ongoingly shocked by the lack of the lack of getting it together with regards to trans issues and, and and it's hard to want to be the person that's constantly screaming you're doing the trans things wrong because I'm trans and you know clearly I have you know I'm busy trying to scream about other things for other people as well but you know implementing the trans protocol for what it's worth in Hamilton they've been at it for two years now They've done a thousand out of six thousand people, and the mayor hasn't taken it. I don't think any of the councillors have taken it, so they're not making that a priority. The province isn't making the incarceration of trans people and how they do that a priority. It's hard not to feel sidelined as a community, and we're talking about a significant community of people. You know, this is like more than one percent of the population. Right. As as people become more and more comfortable coming out, it. It worries me ever so much, the lack of concern and attention paid to that kind of stuff. And I don't, I don't know how to, you know, other than doing this stuff, you know, I, I don't know what to do about it. I mean, there is, there's something going on now where folks have complained in aftermath of Pride to something called the OIPRD. Yep. There have been three complaints filed. Um, to get investigated by the Hamilton Police Service themselves, yep. which I find uh, a problem. Mm-hmm. And then the third one will be investigated by the OIPRD, but I don't know the oversight bodies that exist for the carceral system or for jails in Canada, but I think that when we when we think about what equity means and what it means to, to do anything with equity in mind, part of that means doing more mm-hmm. for people who have less. Yep. So if someone is more marginalized, you have to work harder to make sure that person receives the same treatment that someone else is getting, mm-hmm. and that's not happening in the system. We're doing less. We're even using 
incarceration's own punishment tool of solitary confinement to solve a problem of equity. It's, yeah. it's the, exactly the opposite of any imaginable result mm -hmm. or condition. And we do this every day. Yeah. Right? Um, let's swing back to to what it was that Cedar Hopperton said. Because hmm. I agree with it. I, I actually really strongly agree with it. Um, and, and I've kind of said it publicly myself just to, you know, <laughs> daring the police to arrest me. You know, I, I knew that they wouldn't. It was just me being silly. Mm. Um, but how do we do that? You know, how do we, as a group of folks, as disparate, you know, as we sometimes are and as together as we sometimes are, how do we collectively get stronger to the point where this can't happen again? Yeah, well, that's been sort of the number one thing on my mind since this happened. And my focus has kind of been more on 2SLGBTQIA plus community because I feel like that's where that's where the healing is happening, that's where the pain is happening, that's where the yeah. solidarity needs to be coming from, that's where we need to build resilience. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that first by saying, by checking out all of our own privilege, right? I mean, I, as you said, people, uh, some people have blamed me for what's happened. Yep. And the reason why they can do that is because I found myself in the center of too much. And so I'm a voice sure. speaking out. Um, I'm a voice who's in a leadership position here and there. Mm -hmm. and even if these things are recent, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's that I'm in that position. So how do I continue to try and find a way to say, okay, I might be in this leadership position for a temporary period mm -hmm. of time. How can I move out of that position and get other voices in there? How do I make sure that trans youth, non-binary folks, other queer people, QT, BIPOC folks, yep. two-spirit people are getting a chance to be involved in this conversation and then how does that group of people work together and build trust in the first place to work sure. together to uh -huh. have conversations to build that solidarity and community so yeah. that we can right actively be involved in standing up to hate mm -hmm. right now um, and what this situation has revealed to me more than I already knew is just how fractured we are just how um, yeah how unwilling we some of us are to to come together mm -hmm. but of course at the same time there's been a lot of a lot of, I'd say, solidarity or a lot of strength shown in our community. Sure. I mean, we had a community conversation in the council chambers, and I've been in tons of council meetings and committee meetings and sat in them, and very few people come no matter what the issue is. Yep. And that place was packed with people. Mm -hmm. So I left there thinking, first of all, A, who's missing from this conversation, and, and the BIPOC folks I don't see there, but also, yep. wow, looking around here, these aren't the folks who normally come down to City Hall. So mm -hmm. something is starting to happen now. People are starting to get engaged, and that's a good thing. Yep. And we can't lose that momentum. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that we continue to find ways to, as long as it takes, mm -hmm. build enough trust so that we can get to the you know, conversation collectively. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things, and I'm so glad that you listened to the last conversation that I had for this with Laura. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we spoke about is, like, you know, how hard it is for someone who is racialized to you know become active in things like that or approaching it sometimes feeling unwelcome sometimes feeling consulted at the last minute just so that that check box is marked off it's it's a challenge that shouldn't be a challenge that really needs to be addressed in so many ways and and when we like look at the, you're also on the LGBTQ advisory committee. I don't know if we addressed that. Um, when we look at that, it's it's pretty white, or is it entirely white? 
Yeah, it's, it's pretty entirely white. I mean, pretty I think white. that one of the members of the committee does identify as indigenous, but yeah, yeah, there are nine people. I think the other eight identify uh -huh. as white, so I think that, yeah, you're right, it is quite white. And, and I mean, what you end up getting for those committees are the, are the people that come out to yep. be on them, like yourself. And, uh, and I wouldn't want to discourage anybody from doing that, you know, I think that there's some really phenomenal people on there with great voices. Do you have any thoughts on how to actively encourage without, you know, engaging in tokenism? Yeah, I think two things are important here. One, I think that organizations like Pride and the LGBTQ Advisory Committee are looked up to sometimes from yep. folks who probably haven't um, interacted with those committees or groups to see, gosh, there's only five people on the Pride Board at the moment. Or, sure. or wow, these people didn't select themselves to be on the LGBTQ Advisory Committee. They were yep. placed on there and there were many people who applied. Uh -huh. um, how did that work out? So those kinds of those kinds of things, I think, are a little piece of that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we should go too far with that. The problem is that we're not taking, making enough of a priority to slow things down enough to make sure we do invite people into these conversations, right? Sure. So for me, that's been been the real, but for me, like that's been the real problem is that we are waiting to the last minute because yeah. we ourselves are in a marginalized <laughs> space. We uh -huh. ourselves are precarious. No, for sure. We don't have funding to do things, but that's our that's our fault. Uh -huh. um, what we should be doing instead is saying to ourselves, okay. If this can't be an inclusive event, if this can't be something we can do with any time, if we can't do, mm -hmm. the first time we sit down, the very first conversation we have isn't about this, yeah. and we wait to have this conversation until six months later until we get all these other things done, mm -hmm. that is about priorities in the end. And that's sure. a mistake I've totally made which is in my life, which is not saying that the first conversation needs to be inclusion, not the, not the third conversation, yeah. not the fourth conversation, the uh -huh. first one. Not about getting funders or sponsors, but about about making sure those things happen first. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's crucial. But also, I think we are also beholden usually to other kinds of colonial um, enterprises, governance models, Certainly. and you know the nine people who are on the LGBTQ advisory committee in a pretty white committee mm -hmm. uh, are there because that's who chose that without doing interviews, just kind of took some resumes in, and yep. there were people of color, <clears throat> and mm -hmm. there were other people um, from the disabilities community who volunteered to be on that committee, and whose okay. applications were just turned down. For Interesting. No, for no reason they were ever given, yeah. right? And so what the LGBTQ Advisory Committee is doing now is saying to council, hey, you capped our committee at nine for some weird reason. Could mm -hmm. you bring it up to 15, and could we get some of those other people back on the committee, yeah. right, who wanted to be here, who applied to be on mm -hmm. this committee, and could we go through a sort of reselection process? Awesome. Right? So that's, I'm very, I kind of vaguely knew that that was a thing that was coming. I'm really glad of that because, because there's some kind of mystery in the selection there and, and, and I don't get it. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't, think I don't have, gets it to be yeah. fair. Like, I don't think, mm -hmm. except if you were in the room there and you're one of those three counselors on that selection committee, then you might have some understanding of how Who you get Who were the this. three counselors? If I remember correctly, um, and I could be wrong, for sure two of them were Maureen Wilson and Brad Clark, and I think the okay. third might have been Sam Marula or Tom Jackson, I can't remember who it was, but it's based on membership on the standing committee to which the advisory reports. Yeah. Right? It's a boring, complicated sure. uh, process that's very opaque, uh -huh. and this time around for the LGBTQ advisory committee, there were no interviews. So whatever you sent in as your application oh. was evaluated, and based on that application, nine people were chosen. Yeah. Right. So it's for that reason, and so many others, 
lot of the people who applied who weren't selected are troubled by the process. Mm -hmm. So that's why the very first meeting we had, yep. a motion said this has to be redone. Uh -huh. We have to redo the selection process and make sure that we're adding to this committee. We're, we're going to increase the number from mm -hmm. 9 to 15. Let's move on to something more exciting. <laughs> Sam Marola. Fuck, Sam. Known Sam off and on for years. Mm. Not the worst guy. I don't know what happened there. Um, I, I expect better from folks and for people listening or watching this. Um, Sam kind of had a breakdown in council and then really, really broke down on Twitter one night. And it was really not okay. Um, I don't know how much of that you were paying attention to in the moment. I was watching it live mm -hmm. at home streaming. Um, as I, you know, because I'm a council nerd, I'll, I'll just watch that shit. Right. But, um, you know, seeing Sam Marula basically, he said one thing that I want to bring up to you. Mm. And, it, and it's interesting. And I, I don't know who he's talking about. It might be you. <laughs> <clears throat> Might have been Matt Green. Right. I don't know. Um, but he basically said that, you know, people are trying to... What, what were the words? Trying to, like, leverage the current situation for their own political advantage. Yeah. And, and I mean, this from a city councillor who exists to leverage Indeed. every situation they're in to their own political advantage. I mean... That is what they do. City councils are literally in politics, yeah. right? So and Sam Marilla specializes in that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how's that going for you? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't know if he was talking about me or Matthew Green or other unnamed people who are using the situation for political advantage. I'm just going to assume he meant everybody. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that people think that this is doing me a huge amount of political favor. An sure. issue like this is something that um, no matter which side uh, you may take, if you say, I don't think the police did a good job here, I think they didn't, you know, you're seen as anti-police. Mm -hmm. If you say that, um, you know, I uh, think the police should come to the park, or you're seen as pro-police. And it, yeah. it's a polarizing situation. Bootlicker. Right. Oh. There's a, uh -huh. it's a polarizing situation because sure. pride and police, for whatever reason, are caught in a duality mm -hmm. and no matter what happens when I got involved with pride I knew that this would come to be a discussion and I yep. knew that at some point um, I'd be talking about it publicly mm -hmm. and it certainly has been anything but an, a nice time or me getting political favor it's mostly yeah. been people um, expecting a lot from me um, you know attacking me sure. uh, and wanting to have conversations with me about um, about Pride, which I'm happy to have this conversation. Actually, this is a good mm -hmm. conversation. Um, a lot of the conversations I've had the opportunity to have have been good. I've I've enjoyed those chats. I've enjoyed this chat. I yeah. think it's good to be able to talk about some of the things I care about, some of my values, some of my ideas sure. publicly. I mean, I did run for public office. Uh -huh. So, and I you're probably going to again. Probably going yeah. to again. So it's you know it's something that. Of course I'm interested in being part of public life. Yeah. And so I am happy to share my comments publicly, but to call out the mayor or to call out the police for their behavior, um, if all we can see in that is that someone's doing that for political gain, mm -hmm. then what we do is we reduce all criticism to yep. uh, 
to the sort of periphery. We say, well, we can't consider anything anyone who might have ever run for council could ever say to be serious because they're just doing it for this political attention. Fair enough. They're just doing it to get in the media. And I think that uh, that really discounts all the kind of people you could think of. And there are hundreds of them in the city who are on all kinds of positions who've either been on council and run for council Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, who are important civic voices for whatever reason and are commenting on things. Um, Just to dismiss them and say, well, you know, this person did X or Y. What's the game to be had is, is, is like, you know, so it, who knows who they were talking about? Let's say they were talking about me. I mean, what have I gained this? I got to go on City Matters, you know, and talk about this going down then. And I got a letter that I wrote in the spec. So slightly more people know my name, and that's kind of 50 50 because half of them think I'm an asshole, half of them don't. I don't consider that gain, but, um, but, there's something in this that for both of us has elevated our voices in this and mm. and I'm you know maybe it's just because I'm fucking shouting all the time but and, and I'm glad of that aspect of things but to go back to you and council just to break it down in its most simple why do you want to be a counselor well, it's a, the reason I ran in the first place was because I think that we lost a connection between our civic government, this notion of the city, and the people who live in the city. Yeah. So we do engagement in a really cursory way, uh-huh. and we need to be thinking more about as the city's going through a transition, which it's undeniably going mm-hmm. through, as the planet's going through a transition, which it's undeniably going through, um, what are we doing to ensure the people who are most going to be affected by those transitions are put first on our priority list? Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, in the back of my mind about something that happened on uh, in, in the Beasley neighborhood in Ward 2 where, you know, we're saying well, we can't put trees in this neighborhood here because it's too expensive to put them there. It's like, yeah, of course it's expensive to put those trees there because if they're right on a major road and you mm-hmm. have to put soil cells in and it's going to cost a lot of money. And sure, it's easier to put it on a place with a big boulevard sure. or a big uh, right-of-way mm-hmm. or a big park in a neighborhood that has the space for that. Yep. But equity means rethinking that, how we understand where the money should be allocated. Mm-hmm. To say, well, on this heavily tree-lined road already, where there are already you know, 50% canopy, we're gonna say this is a little bit less of a priority than the place with absolutely no trees and choking yep. air quality. Mm-hmm. And a part of um, the city that's you know been classified as a quote-unquote code red neighborhood. Uh-huh. So I care kind of about trying to, to bridge the huge gap between, I think, between a council that's largely out of touch with what's going on and a population that's moving further and further and further into precarity. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's why I want to do that, because I think that we need people who live mm-hmm. in our wards, live in those neighborhoods, are connected to our community in meaningful ways to be able to then get into positions of a power and then bring, open the door and let them in. Yep. It's, I mean, oh gosh, you're a monster, vying for political power, oh, these awful things that you want to do. It's, and, and I mean, I'll say, I think that most people that, that want to be a counselor are, are doing so in the beginning for the right reasons. Mm. I, had, I had a big talk with Brad Clark at one point about why he wanted to do it. And, and you know, it's all of his political stuff came from early activism. 
you know, and it, it's interesting to see Brad now and be like, oh yeah, he used to do this, that, and the other thing, and then, you know. I hope that your good intentions, you know, when you become a counselor, presumably, <laughs> continue, you know, eight years after the beginning of that, because one of the biggest problems that I see is that there are people that are just sitting there, and just sitting there and half doing the job. And, you know, so I, I wish you luck with the next time that you run. I'm not in your ward, so, you know, my, my say is fucking nothing. But, um... No, everyone matters. I think that's the thing yeah. about Hamilton, too, right, is that we do think that uh, we become too territorial in that way. I'm glad you said uh, that because, mm -hmm. you know, people think, well, what's happening in, in a ward two when you're running? And it's like, yeah, sure. that matters. But Hamiltonians uh, do this thing, which I will talk about forever because I love it. No matter where you are in Hamilton, when you meet another Hamiltonian, the things that people talk about are Hamilton. Yep. And you talk about what's going on where you are and where everybody else is. And so, you know, it does matter, I think, what, what people think of each other. And we should have less of a ward-centered focus. Because when people are sitting there representing people in their mm -hmm. ward, you got to keep your local issues in the back of your mind. Yep. But the decisions that group of people makes impact every person in this whole city. For so sure. So if you've got seven people who aren't in your ward and mm -hmm. they all uh, vehemently don't uh, want something to happen that you're passionate about happening, right? It's yep. not going to happen. Well, it's, and so that's, I think it is important for us to sometimes look out and say, what kind of leaders do we have in other places too, right? Yeah. Awards. One of the, oh, I'm always pulling for, you know, this, that, and the other, yeah. and uh, and try to expose as much of that in what I do. But one of the biggest problems that I've seen over and over and over and over again is the quiet votes that people don't think that matter, that are, you know, horse traded away. Hmm. And... Uh, and the a lot of lack of debate on hyper local issues so you know when we break things down into ward issues of, of course each councillor is supposed to be you know pulling further ward and stuff like that but there are very definitely agreements about how voting goes where and i'll vote for this for you and we'll you know pull it together to do this for ward two and you know you'll pull it together to do this for ward seven Instead of making actual decisions and becoming informed on issues, I feel like that's the way a load of that swings, and, and I, I fret about it. Um, you know, not because, not because I think that there should be more debates about those trees, right. but because I, I think that all of those issues deserve the consideration. Well, I think a great example of that, I think something that is maybe overlooked is when councils first get elected they have a few chores to do mm -hmm. them one of the first chores is wait a minute who's gonna chair the standing committees yeah. and what happened this time around was interesting because there was a focus on it so we got a lot of reporting on what happened with mm -hmm. the standing committees but a lot of the decisions about who would chair those things happened outside of the public's view and something that i think more elected officials need to be uh -huh. of are sadly and boringly the bylaws and so sure. it's been something I've been tracking for, you know, for years now and been involved with. That's the place where, sadly, you can get these things to become more public because yep. it's a shame to say, I'm going to have this conversation about who I think should be the chair of public works. And what usually ends up happening is um, a kind of pejorative relationship emerges. I'm the experienced returning counselor. You're the rookie counselor and those experienced returning counselors end up chairing in the very first year of the next term. Mm -hmm. Well, what that sets up is just like a kind of 
almost a five-year term for those folks, right? Uh-huh. Who are in those positions where they're chairing and not really giving the reins over to someone. I other day I was at a meeting and saw a newer counselor um, kind of uh, had to fill in a, they were a vice chair of a committee and had to fill in his chair and watching them kind of figure out how to use the the new electronic voting system for yep. the first time and thought, gosh, what occurred to me was, gosh, that person didn't get trained on how to do that. Mm-hmm. This is happening right now live. I'm thinking <clears throat> those kinds of simple things, those kinds of infrastructure things, that if you're looking at this from a perspective of how everyone ought to be treated, how new people ought to be treated in new environments, sure. what is a labor relations justice lens all about, then everyone gets treated kind of uh, reasonably. Things happen more transparently. Mm-hmm. Right? So, because if it's hidden from the public, yep. then the public doesn't have a chance to comment on it. And or even to think about it, yeah. We know less. And then it just does seem like everything weird is going on there. Uh-huh. Even maybe it's not. True enough. Right. So, I, we're, we're doing all of this backwards. Um, but one of the things that I noted at a certain point, and, and my radar kind of went off a little bit, Wondering about the why of it was there was a counselor selected to be each each committee has a counselor as a member. Yeah. So Sam Marula was the default for that and wasn't coming to the meetings and wasn't doing anything and seemed mad when asked to. Um, I don't even know what my question is. What the fuck was that? Like he, yeah. he seemed like mad when people expected that he was paying attention at all and then like immediately bounced. I don't know. I don't remember anymore who was the liaison for the previous term of council. Who for, I, I think it was there were no two idea. actually. I believe it was Aiden Johnson and Matthew Green. Mm-hmm. And then every term of council it resets. Yeah. So this time for whatever reason and the reason remains a mild mystery to me at this point um, why Sam uh, volunteered to be the liaison for the committee. But mm-hmm. Which the is moment, fine. Yes. Yeah. The moment this happened, where actually the moment, I think it was May 16th, after the committee had passed a motion about not holding a flag raising ceremony. Uh, because Sam of became Nazis, publicly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sam became publicly outraged about that. And then uh, Maureen Wilson became appointed to the committee shortly thereafter. Yeah. How that happened, right, um, mm-hmm. is, as you say, and so leading kind of leading up to all of this right. junk, I would have thought, oh, Sam would be fine at that. You know, he seems to be in the right place on certain things, and maybe not, you know? And and the jumping ship and the just, like, it was just like, I clearly don't give a fuck was the impression that I got. I don't care enough about this to have even paid attention. I'm out. And And... And I'm not putting that on him so much as the entirety of council, nobody thinking that it was important to be a member of that committee. Yeah, I don't I don't understand that process either. That's another one of the things that's super opaque and mm-hmm. super weird is that there isn't really a public way to understand how the selection of Sam yeah. happened to that committee and then how the next person, how Maureen Wilson, was now on the committee. Uh-huh. So I'm like, I'm going to call Joey Coleman and find out the truth of how this is done. <laughs> you you know, probably there's, know. A, there's a set of, like, right. there's a set of beautiful nerds. And, and the, I'm kind of a council nerd. You're clearly kind of a council nerd. But there's people that know, like, all of it. Right. And some of it, some of the things that are mysteries are just silly. Right. You know, like that. Um, I lost my complete track of thought. 
because that's okay. <laughs> it's because of the weird noises in the background. Still at Ribfest in the park. Yes, here at Ribfest in, in Sunny Gage Park. Um, through all of this, it it having been a shit show from beginning to end. I've been looking for better from the police, which we're not going to get. I've been looking for better from the mayor. I mean, that's the first thing that I looked to was, wow, the mayor really has an opportunity here to step up and help make this better. And, and he's done the least that you can do without appearing to be glaringly homophobic, is what I would say. That's how I'd describe it, is it's the least he could do. Um, let's talk about a thing that's not quite been public yet. I was going to have a meeting with the mayor because of a letter that I wrote. Mm. Um, and you called me the night before and, and suggested that I not. And, and you weren't the only one that did so. Mm. You know, a bunch of different people were like, oh God, please don't do this. And in my head, I was just like, somebody needs to talk to this guy to get something out of this because nothing's happening, nothing's being done. And in my head, that seemed like a very reasonable thing to do. And I was like, I'd armed myself with all of this. You know, this happened in Hamilton with the police and a trans woman, and this happened and this person died. And armed myself with all of the stuff that I wanted to offload onto him yeah. with this like idea that it would have an impact. And, uh, and I really appreciated the conversation that we had. Um, because I think that you're right. And if I didn't, I wouldn't have, you know, succumbed to pressure and knock on. I didn't go. Um, and basically, my recollection is that you're like, stand with the community on this one. And, and me as like, you know, in a public sense, a newish kind of to the community, um, that struck me as powerfully important and having solidarity um, was powerfully important. And the reason that you asked me was because the mayor hasn't approached the people that exist to speak to mayor and council in these kinds of circumstances is that there's been still zero communication between the council and the LGBTQ advisory committee. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm not, I'll be clear, like, I've never really said publicly that I think the mayor should be coming down there to talk to the LGBTQ advisory committee. And one of the reasons uh -huh. I've not said that is because I don't think that community, that committee, sorry, represents the community until we can go through a reselection process, right? So sure. right now, you know, it's, it's interesting for that committee to make decisions because they're making them with the knowledge that they're not representing everybody. We have kind of opened our meetings up and they are public anyway. And so other people are coming out and they are participating and getting, and getting things to say. But the, the thing I was more concerned about in that conversation with you was that um, having a meeting with the mayor to discuss what? Having a meeting yeah. with the mayor when? Having a meeting with the mayor in private, in public? Mm -hmm. Having a meeting with the mayor with who else? So those kinds of fundamental cornerstones of, I think, ethical meeting practice, of open and transparent meeting practice, yeah. of... Um, ways to facilitate and mediate conversations about things that are extremely mm -hmm. um, hard to talk about need to be at the forefront of, of your organizing of a meeting. Mm -hmm. And I remember I myself and other people who got emails, it was just very cursory. It was just like, yep. there's this meeting happening, can you come? And I think that we have to try and, and ask ourselves, um, 
who's inviting us? Why are they inviting us? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And, and we need more information. And we weren't, I wasn't being given it. So for yeah. me, I was saying to other people, um, pretty much only you actually, as I was the only person I really spoke to, and uh-huh. said, um, I don't think people should go to this meeting. My opinion is this. Yeah. You know, if you do go, fine, go. But I mean, I don't, I don't think you should. And this is why, because I think we need to wait. Mm-hmm. I think we need to get with ourselves first. Yeah. Let's all have a community meeting. Let's have some debriefs, which aren't going to happen tomorrow. And mm-hmm. let's get ourselves right. And then let's go down to that meeting when we're ready to have that conversation on our terms. <clears throat> and let's make mm-hmm. it do that in a way that speaks to what we want to get out of that meeting. But yeah. um, kind of coming down for a shake of the hands or to even just to be angry and tell someone how you feel, I don't think that meeting uh, was productive. And what we've seen from that meeting, frankly, is that nothing's come of it. Yeah. So I, well, I, think I don't even think right. that there was... I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that there was ever really, I don't know anybody that went to the meeting with the mayor. So mine was to be like a completely separate one-on-one kind of thing, which, you know, I've done with other mayors before, um, as, you know, just as a citizen kind of thing. But that larger meeting that was, you know, happened with like the new advisors Mm. and and the community, I don't know who the fuck actually went to it. I've never heard anybody say, yeah, I went to this and Mm. it was interesting because, or, you know, in any kind Mm. of public way, I don't even know if it happened. Like, and you're talking about, you know, transparency and accountability with regards to this. Yeah. So not knowing what happened there, not knowing who went, not knowing what was said, it's just garbage. And clearly it's had no effect. You know, nothing's been said, nothing's been done from that point forward other than, you know, quote unquote, or hashtag Hamilton for all. Well, I think one of the things that people express reservations about publicly saying like, you know, um, you know, when you when you just brought this up now, the first thing I thought was, uh, you know, this is just going to feed into people's paranoia that I'm going around um, trying to convince people <gasps> to go to sure. meetings, right? Yeah. And I get that. And I think the reason why that that is partly out there or that there's an issue there is because there are some people who maybe have the polar opposite opinion that I might have. Yeah. They still don't feel like they have a safe space where they can have their voice heard. Yep. Right? So when we haven't even gotten our community a way for us to talk to each other Mm -hmm. and a way for us to feel safe and a way for everyone in our community to be able to come together and to build those trusts and and things which I think are important. I'm not at any way saying that we shouldn't do that. I think, in fact, that's the work of our community Mm -hmm. that we have to do is to figure out ways to um, to make it so that we can trust each other and have those conversations. But we don't have that set up yet. Yeah. Um, going down and having political, politically motivated conversations, which uh-huh. is totally a fine conversation, is, I think, dangerous for communities. Yeah. Well, that's that. That's the thing that in that conversation that I had with you and a couple of the others, that's the ultimate conclusion that I came with is that, you know, I'm a member of this community. I don't know that I'm a perfect representative of it. And me going there with my stuff and having that perceived publicly as, you know, members of the community meeting with the mayor and him somehow understanding how the entire community felt right. through speaking to me. That's just not the way it would have been. And I, I, like, I started to feel like, well, maybe I'm being used, you know. And, and the thought really hadn't occurred to me. And, you know, and I wouldn't want to be used to create the perception that a good job was being done when fucking nothing's being done. Well, I think one of the parts about this that I've been resisting, and I haven't maybe framed this in a, in a way that makes sense until now, but on whose timeline is this happening and why? So yeah. there's, a, in one sense, an urgency from people that 
um, things are getting worse in Hamilton for people in our community. Mm -hmm. And if they are going to continue to experience violence, that we need to do something about this now. Well, yep. first thing about that, this violence has been going on for decades in this community. Sure. And while it's getting more attention now and maybe events are increasing, mm -hmm. this is something we've had to be content with for a long time and a solution should have been should have been come to about what to do about this years and years ago. Um, but secondly, it's cycles of media. Mm -hmm. It's um, wants to get this off desks, to get back to the, uh, things, to not you know, have yourself be distracted. Yep. Those are the kinds of reasons I think that are motivating why people want to get this all sort of sewn up and done before summer vacation comes, before sure. other kinds of pressures come. And a lot of those pressures feel very institutional, very colonial. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as a community, we can't succumb to those pressures. We have to say what's important to us. What are the things that matter to us in this mm -hmm. conversation? When do we want to have this and why do we want to have this when we have this? And not saying, well, someone's got to step up. I mean, that's just a very, a very sure. kind of um, normal well, I mean, uh, way to look at things. Sure. Well, and I, I mean, one of the things that's happening now is, and I, I don't know what value it has. I, I don't want to say that it has no value. I'm going to go. You know, there's a big thing where, you know, Hamilton for all, everybody's going out to stand up against hate tomorrow at City Hall. So there's going to be, you know, maybe hundreds of people out yeah. and, and, and the queer community did this a while ago and brought out hundreds of people and had a big rally and, and that was all, that was all great. I don't know what this one does. And so maybe it does do something, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe thousands of people down. or tens of thousands of people come out maybe and eventually that happens and we have people coming down every Saturday and eventually what happens is that. Um, the folks who are coming out there realize their voice, you know, isn't being heard. It isn't welcome. The hate isn't being accepted, and they leave. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's why I think a lot of the people who are pushing for this stuff are saying that when you look out at other larger cities or other cities who've experienced this, what have they done to combat this? And sure. it's been um, a large show of, of allies coming out, um, other folks coming out saying this isn't acceptable where we live. Yeah. And then people eventually get the message and they go. Uh -huh. But our leaders have to also show up and do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and <clears throat> say, hey, uh, this isn't cool here. Mm -hmm. We can't do this here. What? Well, um, I mean, one of them have to come out. Yeah. As of right now, it is cool here. You know. That's the same in thing. in a lot of ways, and and I it's hope it's the coolest here. Unfortunately, right? This Jesus, is the place that's yeah. actually the coolest. Like right? literally Number the coolest one, place coolest in Hamilton place. to be hateful. Yeah. Phew. We win, um, you know, and I'm reading reports on the daily or hearing from people on the daily about hate crimes that they're suffering right now in Hamilton and they're not getting reported to the police. So this number one is a really, really small number compared yeah. to the actuality. Um, I'm going to bring us right back to the last episode again. Mm. because Laura said the best thing to me mm. and I want to like I just want to drive it home for people that are listening to this and it's maybe a good way to close this off um, these are lifelong goals that we have and and sometimes it can feel really frustrating to not win victories or you know make change quickly yeah you know and, and I need to remind myself that, you know, if things are a little better here and there, that that's progress and maybe that's the best that we're gonna get. Um, what's your take on how much better this can get anytime yeah, soon? Yeah, I really appreciated Laura's words about passing the torch mm -hmm. from one person to the other and saying, 
you know, um, I'm going to pass the torch on to someone else who's going to keep this work going, to keep the struggle going for marginalized communities. And I share that sentiment wholeheartedly. I think that yeah. that we have to do what we can do, what we have the capacity to do. Some people are going to have more capacity later. Some people had more capacity before. Um, but if we keep that kind of connectivity between um, different generations of people who mm -hmm. are all fighting the same struggle, then we keep that struggle going, right? Because I don't think uh, that suddenly it's going to get yeah. better. I think that what happens, you know, we have lots of historical lessons to learn. What happens when there's a revolution? What happens when there's something like that that occurs? Mm -hmm. um, what has the result of that been? Has that always ended up being better? Maybe temporarily, maybe not at all. So, yeah. I mean, there's lots of, lots of thoughts on that. So how do we keep moving? And I think the thing I am focusing on now, and I got this kind of advice from someone who's a good friend of mine um, and from others who I talk to, we can't rush too quickly. We really do have to keep in mind that this is a huge continuum. And if we run too quickly to a solution, mm -hmm. A, um, we might get uh, a really wonderful outcome for that immediate thing right now. Sure. But the damage we do in running means of all the people we left behind, what are they yep. going to get? Right? Well, it's, uh, I mean, right? th these are the dangers of uh, not approaching all things constantly intersectionally. And given the institutions that we have and circumstances that we have to deal with surrounding us it's not possible to be constantly intersectional and it's actually this is an interesting thing that's been on my mind almost constantly and this is that it's it's really hard for a community that's you know under attack to find ways of putting people that are you know even more oppressed or you know not to create right. a competition but people that uh, also deserve to be heard in these kinds of things people that have been suffering the same thing so maybe i just want to say really clearly that you know the queer trans non-binary community in hamilton isn't the only community that's suffering from all of the hate that's going on now and and i hope that the conversation shifts out of being centered around us, you know, because I, yeah, I, I think that that's a really, really important thing as we move forward is that, um, you know, we find ways of co collectivizing the voices that right. can be heard and in this. Well, not alighting any of the voices, right? Because uh -huh. one of the things I do think is a concern is that while each community has their own specific things that affect them. We have we have to do the work you're suggesting about about building coalitions and getting that circle to be bigger. Um, but we can't elide the voices inside the circle either, right? So we yeah. can't do that at the expense of saying, well, um, enough time with this uh, issue that's happened. Enough, enough of these queers, okay? sure. <laughs> um, let's let's just move on already, mm -hmm. right? I think we have to collectively store, archive, think about. Um, the trauma and violence that's happened and make sure that we address that. Yeah, I, I mean, part of that is exactly why we're here today is yeah. I, I want to, I want this to sit as a, a record of people's thoughts on a lot of this. So thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yay! Yay.